G'day, and welcome to The Writer's Lock, your number one podcast for incredibly niche readings and discussions of Pokemon fan fictions from the Nuzlocke community. I'm your host, Rainy. This episode, we're going to be saying farewell to our current rotation of story locks, reaching the end of Grassadia, and taking final looks at Ashes to Ashes and all that we are. Our discussion segment, once again, features Garish Garchomp and Radoff as we discuss that stunning backdrop to any story, world building. We begin with Grassadia. In last episode's climactic chapter, we saw Poppy confront her toughest challenge yet, and come through it changed by both grief and love. Grissidia by Glant Sherlock Chapter 11 Grissidia What you must understand about flowers is language is everything. When one puts a collection together, one is conveying something words could never hope to speak. Thus, each piece of the message must be chosen carefully. So when I set forth to create a bouquet for you, I found myself spending days cataloging every type of flower in my head. As you and the others train, I sit myself on the side in a wheeled chair, as Lola put it, a device made small enough for children's dolls. It took time to comprehend how it worked, but after some practice, I became mobile on simple, flat terrains. This welcomed bit of independence allowed for me to be alone with my contemplation. All the better for this gift must be perfect. My plan is to present the bouquet after your upcoming championship battle, an event that will denote the end of our journey. What better way to signify this than to gather those flowers which best represents our time together, both the good and the bad. You adore stories, and so this bouquet shall be just that. Yes, yes, that's what I'll do. I employ Felix and Timothy to aid me, of course, after making them swear on their dust, they won't go blabbing. Our venture involves secrecy and care, and I would forever crash my head against a tree should one of that seal's songs spoil the surprise. It takes time for us to locate and collect them all. The first is a bright yellow child, five petals with a cluster of stamens, a tribute to my immature nature upon our first meeting. Despite its adverse meaning, I am forced to recognize it as a distant cousin of my late companion. I hoist it onto my shoulder as I would before, and imagine, just for a moment, that I am complete again. No, no matter how hard I wish it, it is impossible for me to be compatible with another flower. I must not waste time on such flights of fancy. They will only prolong the pain. I swiftly move on to finding the next. At my word, Timothy dashes into a human garden and fetches it for me. A tower-like inflorescence with a deep pink hue. Haughtiness, it means. For my regretful arrogance and mocking your feelings, however confused or unguided they may have been, for peaches. They were real to you then, and perhaps if I had used kinder words, you might have listened and not experienced such heartbreak. The next is composed of many tiny white bells, clustered closely together in a strong group. I shall never forget that day in the jungle when you saved me. Well, when you first saved me. My brave protector. When I share with Felix my idea to add something from the bouquet I composed for that silly wedding, he brightens. In a flash he is rummaging through Lola's pack, tossing things about until he obtains whatever he's looking for. He returns with the very thing I was referring, though now the flowers are dried and shriveled, practically breaking apart. It has grown quite unappealing, yet he still kept it. I have to laugh, and am genuinely touched by his offer to add them to your gift, though I suggest we find a more fresh one for purposes, 
so that he may keep his treasure. He runs off in search once I describe it to him, a bloom with a single, lush white petal swirling from the stem, for your purity and innocence, and perhaps for his, too. For the start of our friendship, I choose a curiously heart-shaped red flower, sporting a singular anther cone. I shall regard that rainy day in the garden as one of my favorites, always. We should return to that place one day. My heart grows heavy with the next edition. It has a rare deep blue with a black center, like an eye. Death and a loss of hope, for dear trips. I remember what he said to me the day I was taken from my meadow, to be kind to others. He offered me patience and understanding when others turned away, and not a day goes by that I do not miss him. Perhaps I can honor his memory by heeding his advice. I am almost hesitant to relive the memory of my darkest moment, but it is something I must never forget. And so, for the dangerous passion that banished me from the team, I supply a dark red flower with many petals. It brings to me images of blood and dark magic. If there is one blessing in losing my powers, it is that I shall never again be tempted by the moon and her deadly red pixie dust. As though it were poetry, it is Peaches who offers the succeeding contribution. He's become quiet and solitary since my return, and after our adventures at the White Place, we've not said a word to one another. I am skeptical as to how he discovered my plan, and when I glare at Felix and Timothy, the two look away innocently. A pair of chatterboxes is what they are. All the same, I'm unable to hide my surprise when Peaches offers me a single stout cluster of brilliant purple blooms. Even more so am I bewildered to learn he knows their meaning, forgiveness. My face softens as I accept the gift. In return, I pluck a bloom off the stem and hold it out to him. He silently grins and tucks the flower into his cotton before taking his exit. I do not foresee friendship in our future, but distant civility may be a perfect relationship for us two. I plan to sprinkle the bouquet with baby blue darlings to signify our love for one another. They, along with some ferns Timothy gathered, will round it out very nicely. It is bittersweet to look upon them. Once I held a sprig and wait for my old love, only for her to abandon me, now I may see them and think of you doing the same. It warms my heart to know that you are sincere. Blessed be every moment hereafter that we are together. The final flower is the most important of all. It is a rare bloom, and most of our efforts are dedicated to the search. Felix holds me high as I scan every bed and meadow carefully. Three days go by without sight of it, until Timothy finds it hanging in a basket outside of a human place. Through the window, I see a number of flowers, many of which I do not recognize. Lola explains this is a florist shop and I'm perplexed at how little I still understand about her kind, with how long I have been in domestication. Perching on her shoulder, we go inside, and I watch with fascination as she exchanges small slips of paper for the flower I need. Felix calls them monies, and apparently she is able to do this so long as she is in possession of them. That is good to know. Before we depart, one flower whispers its salutations to me. It is perfectly round with a ring of golden petals crowning a large, dark head. I know its significance. Friendship. I hold tight to Lolo's braid and thought. My opinion of this child has swung from detest to even the smallest bout of trust, and here at the end, I am unsure of where I stand. 
Our agreement never saw fruition. Now here I am, a mon unable to battle. In a word, useless. So I wonder if it is out of pity or guilt that she keeps me around, or if it could be something more. You've cared for her so deeply from the start, seeing something I have been blind to, while I've done nothing but insult and scoff at her ridiculous tendencies, believing that real fairies resemble those in her storybook, marching forward on her quest, even when the threat of death should have stopped her. Though I suppose in that way, she and I are alike. She turned to me for help when danger struck her. She cried for me in the center. She kept her promise as well as she could. I asked softly in her ear if she could exchange more monies for that friendly flower so that I may gift it to her. Zuri, I... Congratulations on your victory. All of you, but, well, especially you. I mean, defeating a fire-spinning feline single-handed is no easy feat for fairies of our size. Watching it fall turned my fear into pride. Your strength is a marvel. I... well, I've made you something. The others helped. A great deal, actually. It's a bouquet. A story. I shall tell it to you when things have settled. But you see this flower, this pink one right here in the front, with the six petals. This is the most poignant in the bunch. It indicates something powerful and complicated, even more so than love, in a sense. You see, this feeling is a journey to achieve especially when someone is such a vain and condescending thing as I. Nothing is more challenging than change, and it is external change which combats the internal, daring it to grow or shrink. It is a dangerous juncture, but one must choose a path. Sometimes we are blind to those who help us along the best route. We may even reject them or question motives. There are times, there will be times, when it is difficult to need someone, and one cannot express true gratitude without finding humility first. I tell you today that your kindness and love have led me to it. You have believed in me, encouraged me, laughed with me, and at me, you card. You have cried with me, and healed me, and loved me. If it pleases your heart to continue to do so, I would like us to remain this way, together. I wish to help you. With what or how, it does not matter. Whatever my incomplete self can provide, even if it is merely sweet conversation by the riverside, or comfort in times of strife, I love you, and I'll tend to you. How does it sound? Hmm? What was that? Say again. Thank you, Zuri. Thank you. With that, our reading of Gracidia comes to an end. Tune in to our next episode for an interview with Glenn Sherlock, the author of Poppy's Tale. Next, we return to All That We Are. Last time, Valna prepared to start the process of evolution while struggling to figure out her next step. Perhaps the wellspring never held such power before, only awakening once the calamity began. It twisted our companions' souls into monsters, and even as they tore apart everything we had built together, the corruption took hold of humanity as well. All That We Are by Erberor Part 3 Wings
Day 12. Where do I even start? Eora is missing. I wasn't out of my cocoon for a minute before Cantor grabbed me and started shouting at me about it. Hadn't even gotten my clothes back on yet. Cantor says Eora left to get food yesterday but hasn't come back, and he's about lost his mind in case his complete lack of manners didn't make that clear. He and Freyr are getting ready to go look... Right, yes, Freyr. I'll explain later. I have to... We looked for a few hours, but the sun's gone down, and it's gotten too dark to keep searching. I got cut off before I could finish earlier. Cantor and Freyr made me stop writing. As worrying as it is that we couldn't find Eora, it did give me some time to level my head a bit. Before, I couldn't even process my most basic thoughts with how much has happened, but I've got it sorted out now. May as well start at the beginning. Being in the cocoon was strange. For a while, it just felt safe and calm, but after a while, I lost all feeling, and didn't think or feel anything for I don't even know how long. It felt like I wasn't even there. And then I felt something new. Another sense I'd never experienced before, but all I got from it was this building feeling of unease. I could just tell that someone near me was scared. I haven't felt anything like it since. Eventually, I snapped awake and worked my way out of the cocoon. Like I said earlier, Cantor grabbed me and started shouting about Eora. I gave him a good shout of my own for that, and... I think a headache, too. I may have hit him with my new powers by accident. That... that's fine. He'll get over it. Once Cantor ran off, I finally got to see what I evolved into. A dust ox. Honestly, I wasn't expecting to change quite as much as I did. I grew at least half a foot and look years older than before. It's a good thing Mom made my clothes so big, or I probably wouldn't have been able to get them on. She even put openings for wings in the shirt she made for me two years ago, which is pretty important because... I have wings. Giant, beautiful green wings. I can't use them yet. They're still weak coming out of the cocoon. But soon I'll be able to fly. Actually, truly fly! After I figured out how to get the shirt on around the wings, I came face to face with Freyr. He's a Ralts kindred that showed up while I was in my cocoon, though he says he's practically matured enough to be a Curlia at this point. Which, I guess it makes sense. I haven't thought much about evolution for any other kindred before. All I really knew was that Wormples and Caterpies and the like all evolve suddenly. The only transition period we have is the cocoon. But Cantor and Freyr say that's not how their evolutions work. It happens over a couple of months for them. Apparently, quick evolutions are rare? I don't get it. Why doesn't it all work the same way? Was it like this with old world Pokemon? Gods, everything I learn just leads to more questions, doesn't it? Whatever, back to Freyr. He says he felt Cantor's distress and came to help, but he's held off on going out to look for Eora until I finished evolving, and has kept Cantor from heading off on his own. 
We can't take chances. Going off alone is incredibly dangerous, he says. Freyr seems like the complete opposite of Eora. He's so careful and composed. Tense, even. That's where everything stands. Come morning, we'll search for Eora again. And I hope to the gods that we can find her. Day 13. We found her. We hadn't been searching Striaton for more than a couple hours before I heard a man shouting. He was angry. Even though I couldn't make out what he was saying, the rage in his voice was terrifying. But still, we followed it to a huge ruined building, and the first words I could make out still give me chills. Tell me one reason I shouldn't break your legs and leave you for dead! I found a place to peek into the building and saw a huge man, a pig knight, holding a purloin kindred against the wall by his neck. The purloin mumbled something, but the pig knight just drove his knee into the purloin's stomach hard enough that he coughed up blood. So you slit her throat over a bag of fruit. I heard Cantor's breathing come to a sickening halt, like he was about to puke. He jumped into the ruin and started stuttering in a voice halfway between a scream and a desperate prayer. As he entered, a girl I hadn't noticed behind the two men called out his name. She was a Duat kindred, and it looked like she'd been crying. They knew him. I haven't asked Cantor how, but I caught their names, Bianca and Charon. There was a quiet moment before Charon dropped the man and told Bianca to keep him down. He beckoned for us to follow and led us to Eora. She had been dead a full day before we arrived. Cantor fell apart. Charon gave what apologies he could and left. We buried her in the dream yard. Cantor is still standing over her, crying. I have to get out of here. I, I knew it was going to be dangerous. I never should have left. I'm just going to get myself killed if I stay. We haven't even found out what the emblems are, and we've already lost someone. I don't want to die. 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 Day 14. No. No! I don't care what I said yesterday. I am not going to leave. I don't know if we could ever succeed in this mad quest of ours, but at least it means something, and that's more than I can say about my entire life. It's been a few hours since I wrote that. I just finished talking with Cantor, and something he said got to me. A lot of things he said got to me. I woke up crying this morning. Yesterday, I was so shocked and afraid that I barely registered that Eora was gone, but it all came crashing down on me seconds after I woke. I'll never see her goofy smile with the missing teeth again, or hear her teasing canter or smacking him with maps, or even have her dump food on my head. She won't be around to laugh or sing. She's gone. I only knew her for a few days, but she was a friend. A precious friend. 
I asked Cantor to tell me about Eora. They met a few years back, when Eora fell into Cantor's house looking for shelter from the rain, and ever since they'd stuck together. Cantor barely left his family's home, and she was the only friend he had, seeing as Charon and Bianca had left the area a couple years earlier. A couple months ago, a traveler wandered into their patch of forest and started telling them stories about the old world. She told them about the League, the Victor's Summit, the wellspring at its peak, and a legend that it could reverse the calamity. Whoever this juniper woman was, she planted a seed in Cantor and a fire in Eora. They wanted to make that legend real, and while Cantor was afraid, Eora urged them to go. She got a map from Juniper, she made the plan to slip away from Cantor's family at night, and she was even the one who swiped the sword Cantor wears from his parents. We sat at her grave for hours, fading in and out of silence, until Cantor stood up and said this. I wanted it. I still do. More than anything. But she turned that want into action in ways I could never have done alone. She's the one who started this where I couldn't. Now, I'm going to finish it. For her. That was when I started this entry. I felt passionate. No, driven. Whatever it is that makes Cantor keep going, a bit of that has taken root in me. And it hurts. Because I wanted to abandon him. My wings are finally strong enough to fly. I only managed to keep myself in the air for a few minutes before nearly crashing. Thanks to Freyer for breaking that fall. And it was amazing. This sense of freedom and possibility rushed through me as I flew. And as I looked up at the moon, I realized that I'm not staying with Cantor and Freyer because it's reasonable. It's not the smart or safe thing to do. But it feels right. I want to feel right. Now that we've heard from the Valiant Valna, here are some words from Oberol, the author of All That We Are. If ever a run of the infamous Draeno Heck, Blaze Black, could begin like any other, then all that we are did. Never planned on documenting it until Valna showed me that her story needed to be told. All that we are is the most fulfilling creative project I've ever worked on. In writing this story, I have made friends, massively developed my ability as a writer, cried at my own words many times, and most importantly, I've learned what I really want to create as an author. More than I want to tell of sword fights and dragons and dark fantasy worlds, I want to create something beautiful. Something that touches the heart. Thank you to Plain Yogurt for the outstanding reading, and to the rest of the podcast crew for making this incredible project possible. And of course, Thank you all for listening to a piece of Volna's story. We'd like to thank Oberol for writing All That We Are and for letting us read it on this podcast, as well as Plain Yogurt for bringing Volna's journal entries to life. 
Be sure to check out more of All That We Are by following the link in our episode description. From the games that springboard our imaginations to the dark fantasy worlds mentioned by Oberor and everything in between, world building is a fascinating aspect of many storylocks, and our approaching discussion segment dives into the topic with gusto. But before we get to that, did you know we also have chapter compilations for all of the storylocks we've read? On both Spotify and Anchor, you can find bonus episodes for each storylock, so now you can listen to one chapter right after the other. They're a great way to experience the stories we've featured here in a different format, so be sure to check them out. G'day, it's Rainy here with the discussion segment. We're joined once again by Gar and Rad. Say hello, guys. Hi. Hello, hello. All right, so last time we talked about Gajinka, and I believe we touched a little on it then, and I think we've probably touched on it in other episodes. But we're finally going to be talking about world building. Yay. Yeah, boys. <laughs> Everyone's favorite topic. <laughs> All right, we're not actually going to go too de- in depth with it, um, if only because world building is such a huge damn topic. And I, we, we probably we could would go over time. Oh yeah, we definitely would, and we could probably even do, do multiple I mean, episodes. That's, like, that's probably like the entire fourth season or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, we could definitely do like multiple episodes, doing like separate subjects each time. <laughs> Let's go over the basics this time and talk about some things that people can think about. So let's get on with our first question, and that is, what is world building and what is it meant to achieve? So to me, world building, uh, it's not just building a setting, but I think it's more about just making the world more alive and active in general. Like it's, it's hard to sum up, but as much of it is macro as it is micro, or, you know, like, as much of it is about the overarching world lore and, you know, how Gajinkas came to be, for an example, as it is just, you know, how the Fortree City gym operates. But what it's meant to achieve kind of depends based on the story, too, and how much of a focus is on the world itself. But a lot of time, you know, a lot of times world building is kind of just used as a supplement, whether it's setting the mood for the story or playing into the character's journey or providing some symbolism or denoting progress or what have you. But a lot of times it can be a real focus, especially in stories where it's like an alternate universe of a region. Like, I think it encompasses everything from geography to I would even argue just like what the evil team is doing there and that kind of surrounding activity. I I think world building is less more hardcore just like setting like the land and more about lending like a vividness and a dynamism to the entire world itself. Yeah, actually, my my answer is very similar as well. But uh, Rad, would you like to go next? Yeah, I was just going to say, especially when it comes to Nuzlocke's, because you are ultimately working from a basis because you're working from a Pokemon game. A lot of world building is you're trying to look at what separates what in your world is going to be different from what you generally have in the Mm -hmm. Pokemon game. What parts of the region are you changing or what details are you filling in that the games leave out? Yeah. And I think, um, especially for, yeah, for Nuzlocke, you have to think about all the items and their world building because we have a lot of, like what is a evolution stone or what is a pokeball that sort of thing and they don't actually have mm-hmm. like what's a potion yeah well they don't really have any hard answers in the actual universe so we have to come up with our own sort of thing don't we yeah yeah exactly or even just like when it comes to the gym challenge there's so many things that people tend to think about when they're creating the stories such as you know age limits or what the or what kind of like rules are in place or 
legal stuff you know if a pokemon dies that kind of stuff a lot is kind of just left unsaid in the pokemon universe and Mm. for good reason obviously but it means that we have a lot to work on and expand upon as creators yeah Yeah. like on a with the gym challenge on a more racker level like what is a gym leader like with clay for example it seems like he's the mayor of the entire town but a lot of the other ones just seem to be some random person who happens to be a prominent figure in the area Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can even ask like, what exactly is even the point of the gym challenge any longer? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So my answer is very similar to Gar's. So basically, world giving is giving your characters a place to live and interact with, and the mm-hmm. world, yeah, the world gives their actions and thoughts um, shape, and yeah, that the those rules and the history can pose a challenge for the character, and they can overcome them depending on their personality and their goals, or they can kind of go with the flow, that sort of thing. But yeah, world building can really encompass anything from like a nation's political system down to magic spells and how those things mix together and affect each other. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and I really like that too, that it's kind of like, I'll get into it later, but it's kind of just customizable based on the scope of the story. Yeah. It's like, what, which parts of it do you think are important? Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And how you interpret every single part of, well, especially since we're talking in terms of Nuzlocke's. Like, how do we interpret every single thing that we over um, that we come across in the game? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hmm. All right. How about we move on to our next question then? Uh, <laughs> I think this one's going to be a little painful. <laughs> uh, how extensive should your world building be? Oof. How about uh, how about I start with this one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get really tied up with world building. <laughs> it's so easy to just work on your lore and and you know go shuffle along and do all your you know, like, what is a Pokeball? And just write the entire history of Pokeball manufacturing. <laughs> I've actually done that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. And then I actually forget to write the plot in my story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I know having... So sometimes having too much is better than too little when it comes to reference material, but sometimes there are downsides to that because if you don't give yourself enough breathing space for when things don't work out the way you want... Um, yeah, you really do need that flexibility as things present themselves. <laughs> so it will save you a lot of pain mm. later. <laughs> the the thing uh, is, world built. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just it's really easy to write yourself into a corner if you've got too much strict world building. Yeah, the thing with world building is that it's really really fun. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. easy to end up doing too much of it, and I think it's important to know that even if you come up with all this stuff, you don't actually have to use all of it. like you can save some things in your back pocket for for later well and it's also just the whole the whole iceberg theory or whatever where you're gonna have some stuff that's on the surface and that you're presenting to the reader and you're often going to have a lot of stuff that might not ever show up even in like an extra and that's perfectly natural that's how things just are and i mean not that you should just go super hard on everything until you kind of just burn out because that's another big issue too but it's okay to come up with some world building stuff and have it not ever really see the light of day or only be like kind of vaguely alluded to or working in the background Mm. i think when you make when you write too much stuff though i think you get very tempted to use it and end up info dumping (laughs) oh absolutely yeah i think that's definitely something that people need to need to avoid that's one of the big writers (laughs) no-nos 
Mm. I think I think when you look at you know professional like you know fantasy worlds and such, there's a lot of details that are only sort of revealed in the concept art or in like the manual or something for a game. And I think you can sort of treat it the same way, where it's like, yeah, this is all like this is a thing, but it's not important, so it didn't bring it in the main product, you know? Mm, it's just mm. a fun little extra. Worst case, like or not worst case, but if you want, you can just be like, uh, here's my story. Okay, I finished my story. Here's a dump of all the world building stuff I didn't use in case you're interested. <laughs> and I'm sure someone's going to be interested. Yeah. Uh, I've got a bit of a pet peeve about people doing info dumping as like extras and stuff. But I mean, if it that's was done, at, yeah, if it was done at the end of the story, then that's fine. <laughs> yeah. As, yeah. Yeah. I think you need to just work out what you need to say in the story itself without ne- mm-hmm. people needing all this extra supplementary, you know, a content. Story comes first. <laughs> Yeah, story comes yeah. first. And I would say, like, I guess my my answer for this is just as a general rule, reasonably extensive, but it kind of, the world building and the level to which it's considered extensive kind of scales with this story, in my opinion. So if you're writing a story uh, like Impulse, for example, that's got a very grounded world and, you know, a pretty grounded plot then you don't have to do a, you don't have to like revamp the entire region but y- you can elevate it by having a good idea of how the gym system works or expanding on npcs or ironing out logistics and making those kinds of tweaks to really show to you know put that kind of care and thought into the world and kind of just build a really nice organic vivid sino or gower or whatever just from the base but you can also go the exact opposite direction like i hate to turn the lens on myself but like i decided hey let's make a little cyberpunk so i had to take a lot more macro focus and figure out what the region could look like in the near future what extensions of technology i wanted to focus on years in the future how the world has progressed all of that and but then there's a level of prioritization with that too because like my story focuses on a trio of Pokemon, but they're not trained and they're not exactly wild either. So I focused on, you know, Pokemon integrating into society and taking up jobs, whether it's Ride Pager or, you know, Pokemon that goes into society and, want, and becomes like a bodyguard or my Alola Chu protagonist who's a hacker and basically adding a third kind of Pokemon to the two main ones of Wild and Trained. But as a result of that premise, it meant that I hardly thought about Trials and Island Challenge and that entire side of things because my story goes in a totally different direction. So it's kind of just like you just got to focus on what's relevant and kind of just build on whatever's required of you. Whether And that... that stays true no matter how big or small the changes you're making mm. I'm, I'm just imagining a snorlax at any fast food job job oh my oh god, god. Uh, well I, <laughs> I have to write that now Damn it. as, as someone who works in fast food we do not get enough space in the kitchen to fit a snorlax <laughs> that's true <laughs> I, I uh, dread to think of having that as a... Co- Actually, to be fair, there was one co-worker who was pretty big. That's that's a bit rude. <laughs> it was a dick, hopefully, it's fine. Hopefully they were tall, because I always had problems when I was working at McDonald's <laughs> with trying to reach Ugh. up to places. 
They asked Kelsey, me I've to. Had that um, issue, well, that's but... why they hired him. That's why they hired him. <laughs> yeah. <Alex. laughs> I got asked to put the uh, the soft soft serve um, like the liquid in <laughs> into the machine. Oh. It oh. it didn't work out well. <laughs> Yeah, even a... with a even with a little stool to stand on, it went everywhere. Oh, I felt so bad. Oh. <laughs> I was very think of very short rainy, <laughs> trying the <laughs> best. <laughs> so just rain. Yeah, <laughs> just rain soft serve on the floor. I'm like, like I've had this is like completely off topic now, but I've had issues <laughs> where I've just like because I'm at a certain height, I just like leave my cleaning cloths too high and the manager's like hey can, can you oh, not no. do that other people need to use these you know it's like oh <laughs> sorry whoops this is just where i think i would put it oh that's where po- tall pokemon would really help out <laughs> yeah or flying pokemon how does an alolan executor fit into a like a room very carefully yeah would an alola executor wear a tie at its base of its trunk or up the top three ties right at the top <laughs> and they have to be super long <laughs> yeah well what's the point you need to look professional all the way up to down <laughs> giving gar very bad ideas <laughs> <laughs> no i i wouldn't call them very bad i would i i'm calling this prime extra material there's there's a lot of gold <laughs> that would be mined out of this one <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about we go to the next question then? Sure. Yeah, for the best. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, or else we're just going to go on about silly ideas forever. Okay, so our final question is, well, hopefully it's the most helpful one for people, and that is, what tips can you give for creating a believable world? Hmm. And who'd like to go first? Probably not me, because I actually don't know what to say here. Oh, nice. <laughs> You'll be learning from us then. All right, yeah. I, can, I can start then. Go for it. Uh... So I'd say it's a fine line between me telling you don't worry and me telling you keep things realistic because it is easy to be to just like have something not really make sense in the world. But some tips, I guess, would be that you're dealing with two sets of realism because you're dealing with real world realism in a sense and Pokemon world realism. So part of it is kind of about finding a balance between those two and extrapolating any parallels you can think of and kind of drawing off your experiences both in real life and in the game and just kind of considering things that make sense and especially in whatever context pop up for you and I think that just having that in mind can keep you on the right path just as a start uh I would say don't focus too much on the background like I mentioned the iceberg effects where you know there's a lot of stuff beneath the surface that might never show up but you i mean and it's really goddamn fun to do a lot of world building and build out the lore and everything but you at some point you kind of just gotta focus on what's really relevant to the story you don't have to make everything with perfectly sound logic and iron out every logistic because it's pokemon and there will inevitably be hand waving and there's inevitably going to be (laughs) in end to the path that you keep going down where you can't ask any more questions and come up with answers but as long as rabbit hole has to end somewhere (laughs) yeah exactly but like so like as long as you just you know ask yourself some questions and find answers until you feel like you've got enough flesh on those bones you're good and honestly like 
your readers are really inquisitive, but it's often in ways that you don't expect. So if you're really worried that they're going to find a hole in this world building thing that you've been working on for like a pounding out for a week straight, you're probably all right there. You're like your readers are going to surprise you in some way, but that's a good thing because then you can also synthesize that and just, you know, build off of that and get some ideas from there. Like just the main thing I have is just keep experimenting because like, it's one thing the world build too, but as you're writing the, the early stages and putting your characters in the world and really applying it, you're going to find the cracks in the world. You're going to find the ways your per- character perfectly fits and find the ways your character doesn't fit or is challenged by the world. And you're going to really figure out more of what you want out of the world. So just kind of keep experimenting and applying it and you'll definitely get there. Yeah, I mean, you can never really predict how you'll readers are going to react and what what you know their perspective will be and what they can see mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Cause I, yeah because i mean you you can't see you can't see every plot hole that you're creating or cracks in the world <laughs> and also this is serialized fan fiction which means mm-hmm. that like not only not only is there going to be like the commenting each chapter and the guessing game and everything but also, like, you are going to naturally progress as a creator and your story is going to naturally progress and build as you go on and as you think of more stuff and as you think, God damn it, why did I do that in Chapter 5 when now in Chapter 20 I feel a little <laughs> stuck by that. But it's just, I mean, it's, it's casual, it's fun, it's problem solving, and it's really going to grow you as a creator. Yeah. Um, I think my answer is pretty similar to yours once again, because uh, hey. I think yeah, because I think it really Great helps mind. to reference yeah, it helps to reference the real world where you can. So mm-hmm. I mean, you can't reference every single thing because you'll be talking about fantasy subjects that don't exist in the world. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, but if you can do it where it's going to count, yeah, it really helps to reference the real world where you can. Uh, so uh, for cities like buildings i really like to find photo references for yeah. like exteriors oh, yeah. and interiors Hell yeah. yeah especially since pokemon games are somewhat based in the real world oh yeah and i know absolutely. yeah and there is an actually there are urban rpgs really yeah and there are um there is a wiki uh, no bulbapedia page that has like the links to what this what certain cities are based on mm-hmm. which is really yeah. a really really helpful tool <laughs> it's but, yeah, super I, helpful not to not to interject real quick, but you can also go whatever direction you need to as well. Like if you like if Alola is based on Hawaii, but if mm. you see a city and you think like, oh, I can base this off this, you know, Spanish tourist town that I went to or take some ideas from that. Like, sure. Like that's your experience and write what you know. And you can kind of try and adapt that as long as it makes sense. Yeah, put your own spin on it as well. Yeah, I think as an example of that, um, in in Flop's trainer watching, you know, Aura is supposed to be based on, I want to say, Arizona, but in trainer watching, it is much more rooted in country Australia uh, with all the <laughs> the implied, well, brokenness, for lack of a better word, uh, which has it's quite the some only charm word, to it. Let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Flop writing what she knows. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> All right. So the rest of my answer, uh, I think things like, um, well, yeah, the reason I like to do photo references for like exteriors and interiors is because I really like having, uh, being able to ground the readers before I set the mood. And sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's kind of like a Pinterest like the aesthetic sort of thing you yeah, have all your yeah. photos set up and they have that sort of mood to them and i kind of want to get that mood across to the reader in whatever way i can <laughs> no um, that, i mean that makes sense yeah you want to kind of get you want to get that across just especially so it kind of sets up the rest of the scenes that you're going to have there mm. yeah, cause if I, yeah if i want the character to feel like down in the dumps or like kind of grumpy or something i might have them sitting in a like a kind of crappy hotel room or something like that <laughs> that matches what they're feeling yeah yeah so for other things i think should be referenced uh really tricky topics like politics i do think it's a good idea to look up articles on those because you do want to have things like that make sense or have some sort mm. of real world connection like this if, has happened if before. You want, if there's anywhere where you need uh, like an internal consistent logic, I think the politics is probably where it's got to be. I think so because you you really need you really need like especially regions or like in government doing or especially with the gym system because you you have all those people in high positions and they're going to be talking to each other. You need to make sure that they're not doing ridiculous things that'll put the the gym system in in. Uh, jeopardy, you know, in jeopardy or anything like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, for Pokemon, uh, since we're talk- talking about that, uh, I really oh, yeah. like it. Yeah, I really yeah, like it's it. It's a Pokemon stream. <laughs> yeah, it is after all. <laughs> uh, I really like looking up real world animals and looking up articles on like behavior um, and traits. Uh, so I know I've <laughs> I've definitely looked up skunks as pets and how they act. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that was actually really interesting. Because I find with a lot of, well, not really Nuzlocks, but with a lot of cartoons like Disney and Pixar and that, animals in those movies tend to just be dogs with a different skin on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you not please, really wrong. No. Please don't take the skin and put it on a dog. <laughs> just like a dragon is a dog. Oh, wow. But I really think that takes away from each Pokemon's in like their potential individual charm. So that's why I like to look up individual like different animals and then get an idea of their behavior so I can make them more unique and give them their and that will um, go towards their personality. Yeah, I think yeah. that can depend on how animalistic Pokemon are in your world. But you can yes. even if your Pokemon are more human or if they are indeed Kajinkas, then you can still use those traits in some way to affect how you write them yes yeah yeah well i mean even if they're even if they like they can speak or something then that's a really good way to help differentiate them is to make sure that they still have some really animalistic qualities about them that really make them unique from each other to make sure that a cat is different from a bird is different from a fish yeah that's definitely true don't just make all your pokemon different different shades of dogs Unless you're doing a dog nuzlocke. <laughs> I would like to say I love the dog dark- barking in the background during... Yeah. <laughs> no, you could hear Dandy. Aww. It's okay, I mean, he's a good boy. Speaking of dogs. He's a good so... way. He, I know, that was the perfect time for him to pipe up. <laughs> too, too appropriate. 
<laughs> Sorry, editor. I hope that's not too bad. <laughs> the editor's gonna have a real fun time with this episode. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing our I'm, best. I'm sorry guys. to everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry to everyone for hearing Dandy in the background there. <laughs> Maybe she heard me talking about dogs. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> okay. Um. Any uh, anything else to add? Just. I mean, just have fun with it and know your limits. Like yeah. that, like that's that's kind of it. it's really fun to go down the rabbit hole, but like, and and honestly, it can be a really great exercise just in and of itself, especially to help you with like problem solving and improvising almost. But know your limits. Like, if you are planning on writing a story with it, then at some point you gotta you gotta you know actually you gotta crack on with it at some point <laughs> yeah exactly and i mean and you can use it like as practice for the writing like you can do world yeah, building travels to kind of orient yourself in the world and and get yourself in the writing frame of mind so you can easier jump in but at some point you're gonna have to get in there and i think it's better i think it's better for your world building if you start writing because then you will see it applied and you can really start to see it in a different light just just start just put pen to paper man yeah <laughs> so long as you start writing that's what matters <laughs> yeah yeah hmm. all right so this was our last episode with you two oh. anything that you would like to say to the audience i love each and every one of you <laughs> and i'm so i've just been really glad to be on here for these few episodes it's i mean i'm i just love being in on this kind of stuff in general so i'd I want to thank y'all too for having me on, but I, to the audience, just uh, you know, have fun with it. It's a great community, and it's really, honestly, a great way to practice creating because Nuzlocks have so much, so much for you to build off, and so much for you to just come up with off the top of your head. There's, and it's it's also just such a great community with so many great ideas and people that you really you really can't go wrong with it i think yeah i just if because i assume most people listening to this are already at least familiar with the nozzle community or you know you're either in the forums or on the discord if you're listening to this and you're not just just jump in like i've been even if you're not super into writing which in which case i'm surprised you're listening to this to be fair but um, like the community is just so friendly and helpful. Like I've been lurking around for years and years at this point, and I've it's just been such a supportive place, even if you're not as much a writer like I am. I hope this encourages you to start writing, Rad. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. Yes. <laughs> My inbox is open. That's all I'll say. I'll I I got you, homie. Yeah, mine is as well. Heck. <laughs> All right, so let's wrap it up here. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to this this episode. I hope you found it very helpful, and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled reading. Bye, everyone. Later. Our final segment returns us to Ashes to Ashes. Last time we saw Ashley starting her journey and receiving an unexpected gift from an even more unexpected source. Bowser's Family Vacation, the story's author, is back to introduce the final featured chapter. I'll be honest, I locked down a father's anguish and a gift, as chapters to be read here pretty quickly. I struggled on what the third and final chapter would be, though. But I finally landed on Rooftop Run. 
A father's anguish and a gift are both calls to action. Although, in a father's anguish, it's more of a call down from action. Rooftop Run, however, represents another reason I chose to have Ashes to Ashes be in the form of reflections. Rooftop Run is an interrogation of Buddy. Ashley is the primary narrator of Ashes to Ashes, but her Pikachu, Buddy, is just as much of a main character. In Rooftop Run, a long-standing team member, Dakota the Nita Queen, questions Buddy's treatment of Ashley. Buddy shuts down the conversation, but in the process, exposes his paternal, or is it paternalistic, tendencies. In previous forewords, I put the spotlight on Ashley, but Ashley and Buddy are constantly collaborating with and questioning of each other. Their journey is continuously being shaped by the others. Thus, it would be a disservice not to include a chapter from Buddy's point of view. It would also be a disservice not to spotlight a chapter with some of the darker elements of Ashes to Ashes. While Ashley is like her father in terms of her morals, Buddy's actions are far more ambiguous, especially in regards to a character introduced in this very chapter, who is a more explicit foil for him. Additionally, Rooftop Run takes place shortly before a huge turning point in the run, so it can be understood as a summary of Buddy's development up until that point. Ashes to Ashes by Bowser's Family Vacation Rooftop Run Ashley went into the Pokemon Center. The Abra clung to her. The diseased Abra. Despite myself, I could feel myself begin to pace. I'd lost this bet before. Ashley wouldn't just return the Abra to the wild, or even let Professor Oak take it. She felt responsible. She's just a kid. I shook my head as I squashed that desire to scoop her up and take her home and take her away by flopping on top of her backpack. I could feel the people in the Celadon City Pokemon Center waiting room staring at me. I was prey. I knew what I was, where I was. You know, I don't understand you. My ears pricked up. It was Dakota. My gaze flickered to meet hers. Ashley's a good kid. She's more than a kid, I warned. She's your trainer. She's also my friend. The Nita Queen shot back. Sure, Ashley is amiable, easy to get along with. I get that, and being friends with her is easy. My paw grazed against a front pocket on Ashley's backpack. Her medicine was in that pocket. Being friends with Ashley is easy. And she's clearly friends with you, she continued. I don't understand that. Of course not. I was losing interest in the conversation. As I stretched my tail, I allowed my head to hang off the edge of the backpack. I knew I'd be waiting for a while. I figured I might as well get comfortable in my vigil. The smacking of a thick tail against tile floor. Look, I understand that something with some Spearow happened to you once. My body betrayed me. You said as much after you got concussed from Misty Starmie. That I can understand. It obviously hurt you. You think I don't know hurt like that? Being responsible for the death makes the circumstances entirely different. What I don't understand is what you do now. Your secret is out. Have any of us given you trouble about it? Have any of us even said anything about it? Like it or not, you're safe here with us, buddy. I allowed my eyes to catch Lorcan's. He had the privilege of being able to express how uncomfortable he was. 
I didn't even need to look at the Firo to know how uncomfortable he was. I sat up. Do you want to have this conversation? The drill Pokemon seemed startled. I rolled my eyes. I thought we had been together long enough to know that I wouldn't allow myself to get stepped on. Then I want privacy. I looked at the remaining two. Luckily, the two more problematic ones had already been dealt with, although the Charmeleon's usage of the Gloom's Pokeball was... problematic. Y yes that is reasonable. It is reasonable to want to sleep. I would like it to leave. Y yes Same here. Dakota looked sad, then determined. I took advantage of the time the shift took to return Giorgio and Lorcan. Then I turned to the poisoning ground type expectantly. See, that's the problem. They don't want to spend any time around you. I quirked my eyebrow. How is it that both she and Ashley made that same assumption? Now it's my turn to not get it. What's the problem? She put her foot down. No, you can fool the others, but I have a little brother. I know this game. Why don't you want any of us around? Nothing personal. They complicated matters. But I knew the type of person Dakota was. I needed to choose my words carefully. I want to protect Ashley. She nodded resolutely. There, we agree. But how does shoving us away do that? She won't get attached? She won't fling herself into the line of fire for you? It's dangerous for Ashley. She crossed her arms and huffed. Well, now you sound like that officer on the bridge. My gut twisted. What kind of people would let someone like you go out on her own? I yanked that knife out. I do not, I corrected her. It felt like I was spitting blood. Really? The Nita Queen challenged, blasé. How do you not sound condescending right now? Because I know Ashley. I wasn't scared because I thought she couldn't do anything. I was scared because I knew she could do anything. Yeah, sorry, but that's not how this works. Yeah, sorry, I retorted, copying her tone-deaf mannerisms. But you don't know how this works. She quirked an eyebrow. She had the gall to sound bored. I don't know how being overprotective works. Dakota never saw Ashley pallid in that hospital bed, and she certainly never heard the blaring of a heart monitor try to drown out the silence of expiration on a hospital bed. I hope she never will. I'd never wish that upon anyone. It never fails to take a piece of your soul, no matter how many times it happens. You don't know how Ashley works, I managed to explain. The drill Pokemon rolled her eyes. I'll give you your precious privacy, then. Is that what they call being so insecure about your friendships that you won't let the most important person in your life have more than one nowadays? Electricity flared. Before I could stop myself, I had Dakota's Pokeball in my paws. I groaned as I let it drop back into the backpack. I didn't have the words to deny that outrageous claim, but I knew what my apparent outburst said. For a terrifying moment, I wondered if I was the one who needed to get under control. I jolted. My eyes darted around the room. The waiting room was empty. I reached out to rub my eyes. Had I fallen asleep? I growled at myself. 
stupid. I had gotten rid of anyone else who could protect Ashley's belongings, so I needed to suck it up and stay up. An echo of my nightmare. Why didn't you save me, Daddy? In a panic, or perhaps in a stroke of instincts awoken at last, I snapped my head to face the ghost. I saw my eyes reflected in an Eevee's. An Eevee that had Ashley's medicine in its jaws. I fired a thundershock. It dodged. Give it back, I demanded. I will have to say no to that. Au revoir. It dashed off. I leapt off the backpack after it, but the shock of a clumsy landing up my legs made its way to my brain, dislodging a loose thought. They don't love her like you do. I shook my head violently, banishing that ridiculous notion to the veil behind Giratina's fell wings, where the mangled paw was still reaching for me. They didn't understand Ashley, but I would be an idiot to deny that at least Clint and Dakota loved her. And Lorcan had gotten attached quickly. And like it or not, Ashley and Giorgio were getting along. No, it wasn't that. It was... It's better that they not know. Yes, that. Ashley wouldn't want them to know. Everyone else knows. They know before they know her. It's only a burden that we need to bear. It's something that we share. Yes, that was it. I zipped after the Eevee. I was chasing it through Celadon City's network of alleyways. You know that's human medicine, right? I hollered. Through the twists and turns, it was nearing the edge of where I could track it. Bien sûr, it replied. I am not the idiot, and I am not the one who is going to be making the payment. Payment? I'd heard stories about humans who did things like this, but what did a Pokemon need money from the black market for? The evolution Pokemon stopped. As a thunderbolt ripped out of me, though, it jumped. I was concerned that it had gotten away until I caught the smell of singed fur. I looked up. On the fire escape above me, the Eevee was stamping out the remaining sparks racing up its tail. I seized the chance to leap. It was too high for me to reach. The normal type's head whipped up, the fur on its neck raising. Cursing the lost element of surprise, I scoured the area for a way to boost my starting height for my great leap. I found a dumpster. The lid creaked dangerously as I got on top of it. The Eevee, doing a scan of its own, spotted me. What is your name? It taunted. You gave me a very good coat of the air. It flashed its blackened tail. I simply must recommend you to my, shall we say, client? Buddy, I spat. I strode to the edge of the dumpster and stretched my haunches. And the name of the girl you're stealing from is... The brittle lid cracked, then gave away. Ashley! I heard the thief's laughter from above. Oh, no. I hope your petite fee will make your little buddy bath. I heard him scamper off. But the joke was on him. The dumpster was empty. I jumped out of it. He'd neglected to watch his steps. I watched him jump to the next rooftop. I followed the path of apartments to the Celadon department store. I knew even my slippery target couldn't jump to that rooftop, so he'd be forced to go through the same way as me. I'd corner him there. He wasn't an idiot. The Celadon department store was closed. No police presence. Not for another hour. 
Time to get in and out. But here's the thing about electric doors. They don't care what time of day they get their fill. I went in and laid my trap. He was, however, cocky. Why go up the stairs and cut it close when you can take the elevator and probably some things from the store, too? My double-team duplicates piled on top of him and pinned him down as I sedately pushed the button. He managed to break free, just as the elevator doors closed. I refreshed my double-team. The duplicates grabbed him by the tail. Hi. It's your buddy again. He growled. I don't believe I caught your name. Tell a friend. I tapped his nose with a localized thunderwave. The Eevee's mouth went slack. The medicine container rolled out. I snatched away with my tail, keeping it behind me, as I watched his tongue lick his lips, trying to will them back to battle. Won't you? Suh. His ears flattened against his head in frustration. Take your time. I glanced up at the monitor. We have four more floors. On the fifth floor, he finally recovered his speech. Simon. Nice to meet you, Simon. I relished butchering the collosion. I was even tempted to sculpt it into the harsh vowels of Cantonian. It would be poetic justice, wouldn't it? For the callos that stamped out the Cantonian Pikachu to be molded into the very foreignness it eliminated? Take that, global Pikachu. But no. The Cantonian Pikachu was gone. The Cantonian language was gone, too. Ashley told me that they taught it in schools as a history lesson. The Eevee's lips corked into a smirk. I will be stealing that name, thank you. No, I don't think you'll be stealing anything. The doors behind me opened. He tugged free of the duplicates. I let them dissolve. This time, he had learned his lesson. He turned around to watch his back. It gave me the chance to get in front of him and use a real thunder wave. The vulpine collapsed in a helpless heap. I stood over him. Now, Simon, tell me what you were doing with hospital-grade narcotics. But he wasn't looking at me. I followed his darting eyes. My eyes widened with realization. Well, well, well. Tell me what you were planning to do with hospital-grade narcotics. Through the clenched jaw of paralysis, I heard a string of hissed collusion. From his tone, I knew what Simone was saying. You got stood up, I explained, popping the pee. But by who? He looked at me with hatred in his eyes. The feeling was mutual. Ashley needs her medication. Ashley's medication is the last thing some addict needs. I looked down at Simone. And some drug dealer is the last thing we all need. I grabbed the Eevee by the tail. A cry. When I didn't respond to that, he worked through the locked jaw to choke out, What are you doing? I let him look. He figured it out. A desperate cry. I looked over the ledge with him. There's only one way out of this. I hummed. Mm, well, no, there's two. But I don't think either of us want that way. You either stop dealing drugs and whatever else you do for money, which, honestly, is the worst thing humans have invented, or... I allowed the silence to speak for itself. You said it yourself, I reminded him. You're not an idiot.
Suddenly, I was held above the abyss myself. Stop. I was brought back to purgatory. My savior came in. That's Buddy. That's my Pokemon. The missing one I called you for. What's the other one, then? The officer did not move to put me down. I heard Ashley gasp. It's an Eevee, and it's hurt. The sliding of wheels. Oh, no, Eevee. My medicine isn't going to help you. A beat, then. Will you put him down already? Take your Pikachu. I was placed on Ashley's lap. Ashley looked down at me. Buddy, did that Eevee take my medicine? I flashed a look behind me. The officer was still there. It looked like he wasn't going to be going anywhere until... Until... Until he got paid? I don't know. I nodded. And you chased him all the way here? Really, would I have done anything else? I allowed a bit of my pride to seep into my nod. No officer would pluck me from Ashley and fling me over the edge of the building now. And if so, didn't we have bigger problems? Oh, buddy, you didn't have to do that. He would have figured out they were human pills soon enough. I climbed onto her shoulder and moved in to whisper something in her ear. She went rigid before I could say anything. Oh, yes, buddy, it's better that you stopped him before that. Human pills are a decently bigger portion size than... EV pills. And these are decently big pills. I got in my bit. Ashley picked up the still limp Simon. He blinked at her blearily. We have to make sure you stay out of trouble. What do you say, Simon? I smiled at her pronunciation. I watched as Simon wearily looked among me, Ashley, and the officer. The officer was narrowing his eyes at the medicine bottle on Ashley's lap, then looking at the fox. Then he was adjusting his glasses at his notes. The Eevee wasn't an idiot. He nodded. Ashley tapped him with a Pokeball. I gladly marked it with the S. Then she held out a heel ball. As the police officer held onto the handles of the wheelchair and pushed us into the elevator, he looked at me. He wasn't an idiot either, I realized. I marked the heel ball with an R as the elevator doors closed. To wrap up our time with Ashes to Ashes, we have another message from Bowser's family vacation. Hello all, thank you for listening to Ashes to Ashes. I know that the story is a bit funky, nonlinear storytelling kind of inherently is, but this project has a special place in my heart because it is one of the most experimental pieces I've worked on, and the lessons I've learned, both learning what worked and what didn't, have really helped me as a writer, both with more Pokemon fanfiction and non-Pokemon pursuits. I also want to give a shout out to the crew of the Writer's Lock, who coached me through technical difficulties with both patience and excitement. Thank you for choosing Ashes to Ashes, even though nonlinear stories are funky. We want to extend a thank you to Bowser's Family Vacation for writing Ashes to Ashes and to Kirill Punk for reading each chapter. To read more about Ashley and Buddy's journey together, follow the link for Ashes to Ashes found in the episode description. As always, we'd like to thank our readers, Silverdoe, Plain Yogurt, and Kirill Punk, our editors, CJ Apples and Song With No Soul, our producer Flop, and the rest of the Writer's Lock crew for bringing this project to life. 
And of course, another thanks to Gamaliel for our theme music, C-Made for arranging our jingles, and Nazimba for the wonderful cover art. Thank you all for listening. This has been The Writer's Lock. Stay safe, everyone.